and welcome back to another episode of Cool Theater Chats. I'm Marlo. And I'm Rachel. And today we're spending our time in and around World War One. Lots of theater nowadays was impacted by what happened around this time, so there's lots of interesting things to discuss. I'll start with what is happening in the theater world during World War One, and Marlo will wrap up the discussion with what happened directly after the war. Now, when I started to look into this topic, I definitely didn't think it would be as big of a subject as it is. I think I had in my head that during a big global event, everything else is put on the back burner. But that's not true at all. Life continues, and so art continues. World War One is no exception. Some truly fascinating things came out of the theater world during the Great War, and the shifts that took place in the art world influenced the direction of art in general permanently. Looking into this period also taught me a lot about the power theater actually had over the daily lives of people in this period. Remember, this was before film was easily accessible for people. Before World War I, theater scene was booming in Europe. It was the new century. Technology was progressing to new heights, and theater was more accessible than ever. There was theater for everyone. Any taste, any age, any financial bracket, and any whim of the moment. If you were a family in London during pre-war 1900s, odds were that theater was a part of your weekly schedule. But then the war struck. And, weirdly enough, at first, not much changed. Lives were still continuing on as normal. Theater continued to be the everyman's ideal source of entertainment. Something had shifted, though. Normal now had expectations surrounding it. In the article Staging War by Eva Kravansnik, she said that every day was refracted through the lens of war. Shopping, cooking, child rearing, reproduction, homework, leisure, and neighborhood relations were no longer considered private, but became a matter of state, a matter of the war effort. Although the activity of going to theater was the same, the contents of those performances shifted drastically. No longer were they new plays that reflect a turn-of-the-century thought and ideals, but instead they became stories of patriotic heroes that would take out their enemies without breaking a sweat. Plays were now staged to fit into a densely patriotic framework. They were filled to the brim with this stubborn optimism, this nationalism, this almost frantic assurance that the war would be won by the summer and that people had no need to fret at all. My personal philosophy towards theater places a heavy emphasis on theater being an extension of humanity. Theater as an artistic medium does a standout job of portraying real life and real emotions in a way that is accessible and honest. Theater can be such an opportunity for authentic connection, and the art I prefer to consume and be a part of tends to search out for those options. But sometimes in my excitement about that side of theater, I forget that theater is also an extremely effective tool of influence. And that can be a great way to enforce a perspective on an audience. All theater has perspective. In fact, I could say that about all artistic mediums. That isn't a bad thing. There's nothing worse than lukewarm theater. But it is powerful. And in the grasp of powerful hands, it can make even the most frivolous piece of art into a way to tilt the audience perceptions into how they want it to be. World War I theater is like a masterclass to this concept. The image that theater created of the war early on in World War I 
was a means to an end. It was a way to instill a common opinion of the war, a picture in people's minds of the war front, a patriotic rage towards the opposing forces, and a deep sense of duty and sacrifice that was needed to win a war of this volume and scale. This influence could be subtle, or it could be very explicit. In Germany, a play called Crumel vor Paris, excuse my pronunciation, was performed in 1914, in which the playwright, Franz Cornelius, ties Germany to the main character of the play, a woman who is constantly being harassed by men stronger than she. These men were clearly a reference to the Allied forces. Painting a nation as a victim, mistreated by their enemies, was a common motif of theater on both sides of the war. Everyone knew what these playwrights were referring to. It was no secret, and people were very receptive to it. As the war continued, this subtle, or not so subtle, attempts at propaganda continued, but now a new priority was in the spotlight. People were getting tired. What was supposed to be at most a year of war was now getting longer and more and more bloody. People didn't want to see it anymore. What they did want was escape. And boy, oh boy, did they provide it. It may seem strange in retrospect, but World War I did wonders for the development of new, exciting theater innovations. Even stranger, this started in the war front. At that time, hundreds of actors and theater artists of all sorts had been drafted into the war effort. These actors got together to put on shows for the other soldiers to strengthen resolve and boost morale. These evenings of entertainment were as fun and silly as they could manage, and were put on by some of the best entertainers of the time. Some of these makeshift theater tropes actually were requested to start touring around the war front. One of these was a troupe called the Gaieties, uh, which was made up of enlisted theater people who toured for the extent of the war across the Western Front. All these shows were big, fun, a bit rowdy, and they did their job. Seeing this, other theater companies started to do the same outside of the front, instead giving mourning families, stressed adults, and scared kids an evening of pure fun. One of the biggest elements of these escapist plays was nostalgia. A lot of the plays being put on in those times were remakes of old comedies that people would be familiar with. This isn't to say that new works weren't being made, but a lot of what was popular was just recycled works. These recycled works were made interesting through wild new costumes, exotic settings, lights and makeup and songs. Plays during this time were filled with new exciting things to distract you from the much bleaker world around you. If all of this sounds vaguely familiar to you, Yes, you're right. This is where Broadway had its origin stories. You heard it here, folks. Broadway was started as a form of propaganda-fueled escapism. <laughs> that was a lot of the popular theater in World War I, but under the radar, more literary theater began writing and producing much more cynical, darker plays. This had very little of the flashiness of the popular theater, but instead wanted to truthfully express all that emotion that came from the darkness of the war. And these long-reaching war-to-end-all-war griefs. We've seen that collective grief is more powerful than we often give it credit for, 
and these playwrights were tired of pressing it away and replacing it with something more palatable. Some of these playwrights wanted to be an acrid paste because maybe that disgust would fuel real change. This dissatisfaction with the state of the world, the anger at how little was being acknowledged evolved into a new, profound, and deeply unsettling form of theater that took off after World War I. One of these movements was the theater of cruelty, which I think Marlo has some things to say about, don't you, Marlo? Indeed, I do. As Rachel said, the next era of theater history that we'll be discussing was largely a response to the horrors of the First World War. People were struggling to make sense of the seemingly senseless and illogical acts that they had witnessed. Our main character today is a young Frenchman by the name of Antonin Artaud, who was born in 1896, moved to Paris in 1921 to pursue his writing career, and stayed there living a life steeped in the arts, writing, acting, etc. Artaud was a pretty interesting fellow. His life was not untouched by severe mental and physical ailments, and also hard drugs, but that's all a story for another time. <laughs> like many artists of the age, he was feeling increasing skepticism towards the existing societal structures that had allowed for this kind of global warfare. And like much of the art at the time, his goal was to sort of buck against the system, to defy tradition. He was of the opinion that theater in the West was entirely too realistic. His mission was to move away from realism back to the roots of theater. Myth. Ritual. Magic. The purpose here was to assault the senses of the audience. There was usually no scenery or set, only symbolic objects and striking costumes. He wished to engage the audience on an instinctual level, to hurl you into the center of the action. He used lights and movement and music that were intended to affect the subconscious, kind of like dreams. If you're up to speed in your art history, you'll know that surrealism was a pretty significant movement at the time, and based on the description of Artaud's work so far, you wouldn't be surprised to find out that he was actually involved in the surrealist movement in France, before he began his work in the theater of cruelty. Now. You might be thinking, that's a bit of an odd phrase. Is that just shows about people being really mean to each other? Well, no. <laughs> In his writings on the theater of cruelty, Artaud notes that both of those words are separate from their colloquial meanings. For Artaud, theater does not merely refer to a staged performance before a passive audience. Theater is a practice which wakes us up through which we experience, quote, immediate violent action that inspires us with the fiery magnetism of its images and acts upon us like a spiritual therapeutics whose touch can never be forgotten, end quote. Cruelty is not about sadism or causing pain, but rather a violent physical determination to shatter a false reality. He used this word in a few different ways. One, as a description of the essence of human existence that art embodies the brutality of life. He also used this word as a philosophy and a discipline. He wanted to reject form and incite chaos. Finally, English author Lee Jameson describes how Artaud sought to remove aesthetic distance, bringing the audience into direct contact with the dangers of life. He turned theater into a place where the spectator is exposed rather than protected, and a place as Artaud stated, in which violent physical images crush and hypnotize the sensibility of the spectator, 
seized by the theater as by a whirlwind of higher forces. He actually envisioned a theater where the audience would sit in the center and the play would happen around them in an act of what he called organized anarchy. <laughs> Encyclopedia Britannica defines theater of cruelty as a primitive ceremonial experience intended to liberate the human subconscious and reveal man to himself. In Artaud's collection of essays, entitled The Theatre and Its Double, he calls for communion between actor and audience in a magic exorcism. Gestures, sounds, unusual scenery, and lighting combine to form a language superior to words that can be used to subvert thought and logic and to shock the spectator into seeing the baseness of his world. All the elements of theatre could be understood as a kind of language, which meant he placed minimal emphasis on actual spoken language. This movement away from traditional forms of theatre and playwriting inspired the theatre of the absurd, which we will get into in the next episode, but Artaud was one of the first to vocalize his dislike for the more traditional style of theatre, the style our old-school cool cat Aristotle was all about. Aristotle placed great emphasis on things like language and plot and sort of disregarded things like spectacle, something Artaud was all about. For those of you who are unfamiliar, spectacle, as defined by Aristotle himself, is simply all the visual aspects of a production, including costumes, makeup, scenery, and special effects. The theater of cruelty was basically one gigantic spectacle. Because Artaud de-emphasized text, he didn't want actors who would rely on psychological sense, but who would tap into emotions and sensations. He called these actors athletes of the heart. The role of these athletes was to display life in its most true and real sense. Artaud's book that I mentioned earlier, Theatre and Its Double, doesn't really define exactly what the double is referring to, but it seems like it is actually referring to life itself, this authentic version of life that Artaud believed could be achieved if humanity were to be awakened, so to speak. If we let theatre work on our senses, we could discover a much more full and intense life than the boring, senseless one we currently experience. Now, these are all lovely ideas, but I'm sure you're thinking, what did it actually look like? <laughs> From Crash Course Theatre on YouTube, here's a brief description of one of Artaud's very brief works, The Jet of Blood. A young man and a young girl, who may be brother and sister, are being all lovey-dovey, then a hurricane arrives. A fun stage direction reads, two stars are seen colliding, and from them fall a series of legs of living flesh, with feet, hands, scalps, masks, colonnades, porticos, temples, alembics falling more and more slowly as if falling in a vacuum, then three scorpions one after another, and finally a frog and a beetle which come to rest with desperate slowness, nauseating slowness. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> then a knight comes in, pursued by a wet nurse who's holding her swollen breasts. The knight eats some cheese and chokes. Night falls, the earth quakes, lightning flashes, and an enormous hand comes out and grabs a prostitute by her hair and shouts, look at your body. The prostitute shouts, leave me alone, God, and she bites him. Cue enormous jet of blood, more lightning, and then everyone is basically dead, except for the prostitute and the young man. They fall into each other's arms. The wet nurse, who doesn't have breasts anymore, re-enters, dragging the corpse of the young girl. Scorpions crawl out from underneath the wet nurse's dress, and here's another fun stage direction. Her vagina swells up, splits, and becomes transparent and glistening like a sun. 
The young man and the prostitute run away, at which point the young girl sits up and says, The virgin! Ah, that's what he was looking for. The end. What a whirlwind. <laughs> Arto did spend a lot of his life in various institutions and in various states of mental health. His writing and art, especially in his later years, is cryptic and very strange. Still, he's been a huge influence on theater makers and theater companies who feel let down by realistic writing and the Stanislavski-style acting we discussed in the last episode. Arto believed that civilization had turned humans into sick and repressed creatures, and that the true function of the theater was to rid humankind of these repressions and liberate each individual's instinctual energy. He proposed producing mythic spectacles that would include verbal incantations, groans and screams, pulsating lighting effects, and oversized stage puppets and props. If you've watched any devised theater or emerging theater over the past however many years, you'll probably have seen some variety of these things displayed in a number of ways. And so it's clear that his work is still influencing the work of theater makers today. From someone who has now been briefly educated in Meisner and Method, some of these Stanislavski-based techniques, I actually do believe that Arto and Stanislavski were kind of getting at the same thing in the end. A lot of the work that Rachel and I did during our theater training revolved around intuition, unlearning the social conditioning that taught us to ignore our impulses. Returning to a state where we are fully awake and observant, capable of displaying all the emotions present in a human heart. And when you really get down to it, I think that's what most artists are after. Despite our very different approaches, as seen juxtaposed in the wartime productions in the theater of cruelty, it seems like we just want to get back to our roots, to find authenticity, something real to hold on to. Now, some people don't believe that there is anything real to hold on to, and we'll talk about that a little more next episode as we discuss the theater of the absurd as well as diving into devised theater. You'll also hear from our special guest, Anton de Groot. For now, we're signing off. Talk to you later, cool cats. <laughs> <laughs>